Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here, too. Uh, it's been an interesting week. I said Lake Wobegon last week, and somebody said, hey, that was great. Somebody else grew up on NPR. It's been an interesting, interesting week, interesting week. Prairie Home Companion, any takers? That's right. Uh, I'm not even sure it's politically correct to admit that now, given... Oops, I wasn't... Sorry, let me back that up. NPR, anyway, that's politically correct. Um, we're in the middle of an interesting summer, and I'm going to admit to you that this last couple of weeks have been interesting... Strange crosswinds, like you think you're smooth sailing, all of a sudden you're like, where did that come from? And I think I may have admitted that we may be unleashing some new realities in our community by some of the conversations we've had, and I don't, I guess I'm surprised that that actually happened. Lo and behold, I don't listen to myself very often, I suppose, but it's been an interesting week, and I think my vision for what community can be keeps me coming back, and sometimes community is just hard work. And I think that revelation came to me this week. Imagine that, standing at the sink of my beautiful house in Buda, realizing people opt out because it's just so darn hard. And it's, it's a hard road. It's a long, hard road, mostly because what you get to confront is what rises in you. And boy, I'd rather look at your ugliness than mine. But when you lead in such a way where vulnerability is just your only, it's your one trick, you're a, it's, when you're a one-hit band, when you're a one-trick pony, and vulnerability is how you lead, then get ready, because it's coming back. And so it's been an interesting week. And I'm here because God is good, and because I believe in you guys, and I believe in what we're building together. Uh, today's conversation, uh, I, I wanted to, I don't know how it ended up on the list. Uh, it's Mike Nonmucker's fault, to be honest. Um, that's actually not true, Mike. But I want to talk today about the Christian faith, and what you might call the anti-environmental movement, or anti-environmental movement. Anti-environmentalism, but I'm not super interested. So I want to steer this in a particular direction. I'm not super interested in talking about American evangelicalism and the pro-business, anti-environment, anti-regulation policies of the last couple decades. I'm, I'm tempted, but that's not really that interesting today. It seems that there's been a marriage between ideologies in our country that has put us in such a place that um, policies that are on the face hard to understand. I think our kids are going to look at them and say, how could you tolerate that? We just have kind of made peace with a way of being in the world that I, I do want to question that. I'm not that interested in politics anymore. That was the focus of my undergrad, and for a while I thought that would change the world. I'm not that interested anymore. It feels like too small a framework now to fit all this in my heart. It just feels like too tight of a box. And you guys know that taking shots at evangelicalism is easy prey at this point. It's not even entertaining. That's not worth gathering for. But there's something at the bottom of a Christian theology that would give itself as part of the bedrock that rises as an anti-environmental posture towards the world that does interest me greatly. So I want to go in that direction, okay? So disregard for the material world and God's presence in that world bothers me when it's supported by biblical evidence, quote-unquote, air quotations, right? When it's supported by biblical evidence that, that we matter and that none of the rest of this matters, it's put here for our pleasure, period. None of it has a purpose. That bothers me when it's underpinned by biblical evidence. For so many reasons, I think that is small. I think it's selfish. I think it's antiquated, and I think it needs an upgrade. So allow me just to say what I think we're looking at today. I think this is the reality. We are disembodied people. Our feet don't remember the earth our heads don't remember the constellations. Our hearts no longer feel the pull of the tides. We've forgotten how to be fully alive. 
We think we seek God, but we've lost the full picture of all that can be known about God because we're mostly just listening on one channel. That bugs me. If we can agree that divine revelation is what God allows us to know about God's self, then I would argue that we have reduced divine revelation to a set of mental concepts captured in a collection of very old writings preserved by women and men from ancient times, and now we're waking up to the reality that there's a really good chance that that's not all there is to know about God. Interesting place to be. Have you thought about that lately? I wonder. Are you growing more aware over the passage of time that there's more to be known about God than you ever considered? Are you moving in that direction? Let me ask you this. What do you know about God? And where did you learn that? If I'm saying anything to us over the last several weeks during the summer, it's that our story, our experience, my personal angle on truth, our personal perspective, our preferred way of hearing and knowing is but one way of many ways. And it was never intended to be complete. In fact, I would say it this way, divine incompleteness, what do we mean? We were designed to be incomplete intentionally. I think that's our greatest gift. Because it drives us to discover one another, and in so doing, discover God, and in so doing, discover one another. I wonder if you fully considered this, and theologians, cover your ears. This is going to make you sweat. Maybe our divine incompleteness comes from God's own incompleteness. Now, don't move. There's heresy wires on all sides. Don't move. Be still here a second. Maybe the glue that holds all of this together, the desire to connect, the desire to relate, to gather, to be in close proximity, to be in relationship, maybe all this comes from God, and maybe God is pursuing us because of God's own incompleteness. Maybe he needs us in some way. Now, hang on. I hear the scriptures rising. I see it. I see Sunday school coming up. I'm suggesting to you that incompleteness is not weakness. It's not defeat, and it's not defect. It's what we share in common with all that is. It's what drives us home to God, to one another, to God in one another. Take everything you know about God, everything you've ever learned, and tell me honestly, do you think that's all there is? What if there's more? What if there's a lot more? What if you've always somehow known there was? What if you just need the permission to accept what your body has always known, which is that there's more? What if your mind's way of knowing could be complemented by your body's way of knowing and perceiving and sensing and feeling? What if God didn't come to save your mind and leave the rest of you as is? What if this is a grand redemptive thing that involves all of it? What if our farmers, that's for you, Matt, our yogis, our painters, our poets, our sculptors, what if they have things to teach our theologians and our philosophers and our preachers and our intellectuals, things that they've always known that we've just woken up to? What if there's enough divine material kicking around in the cosmos that every created thing in every place at every time with any ability to perceive whatsoever could process, could find, could discover enough of God to extrapolate meaning and purpose and trajectory? What if it's all infused? What if I just ask a bunch of questions today? Would it be a waste of our time to gather in this place around better questions instead of just more sharply defined answers? 
What if we could wake up together somehow? What if we could stay in relationship through the, through the tough stuff, through the hard times? What if we could wake up together to something new? What if we could grow in consciousness together? What if we could become more aware of the ways in which God self-empties and self-reveals? What if we could become more open? What if this is a process that largely begins with us discovering our breath and our bodies? I'm just asking questions. Don't shoot the preacher. What if the cosmos, you know the conversation, you know the words, light and darkness and the division thereof. What if the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures of the earth, what if all of the created order, you know, the first five parts of the seven-day mythological week in which we say creation happened and, and, and how God divided it, what if they too bear the witness to who God is and what God wants to be known as? What if we've left out five-sevenths of the equation and we're only focused on day six, which is when we come along? How did Western Christianity get to be so disembodied? At what point did we stop listening to the earth beneath our feet, the sky over our heads, the stained glass around us, and the bread and the wine that we cultivate in our fields to sustain us? When did we stop listening? What role should the creative order play in revealing truth to us? What role does it play in salvation, in redemption? One of our ancient poets named David wrote these words a long time ago, Psalms 90, uh, 19, verses 1 through 6. David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, which is so interesting. He's talking about the skies. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voices go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. I think he's talking about motorcycles, but it was the ancient world. So he was using the imagery he had. It rises at one end of the heavens, and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The heavens, the skies themselves speak, says David. The finest of our modern-day poets say the same, and we could go on for days with that. But let's just look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. It seems it all is saying the same thing. I wonder if we truly believed that nature, that beauty, that order, and the physical cosmos itself could speak truth about who God is, would we find ourselves treating it with such cavalier disregard? I wonder if the joke's not on us and we're squashing the ways in which God is trying to speak even to us. I wonder. So I can feel, I think, the beginnings of your heart starting to say, uh-oh, we're going there. Uh-oh, we're going there. I'm setting us up to think about we something, something that we very rarely consider, and that is this, that the earthy, material, concrete, tangible, cosmological dimension of our lived faith matters. It matters. The way we are in the world either contradicts or resonates with the faith that we claim. What, if any, contradiction have we come so comfortable with that it grows right there by our faith and we can't see it? Our kids will. We've been talking about this all summer. What do we collectively ignore to our own impoverishment because we're so focused on the hope of a better world? When this one pulsates with the presence, the divine purpose, the divine promise of God. This one. 
How did we ever forget this truth? How do you lose something like this? Are we not the ones who claim that our story begins in a garden, surrounded by living, breathing, sentient companions, all tracing their breath and their DNA back to the same source? Is that not our story? For now, ask yourself this question. Why would God need to come to earth bringing nothing new, no new material? Why would he need to come and speak to us if not to show us a different way to look at what already is? That's where we miss him. That's how he flies under the radar. What if God is redeeming it all? Every last atom, every last quark, every last emotion, every goldfish, every last neuron, every hurricane, every last cell in every last species. What if he's redeeming it all? What would change about how we live if we believed that that was true? Many of you aren't willing or ready yet to quite go there, but I'm going to push us in this direction anyway to be more, so that we can more fully accept something that, that I think is a conversation we need to have. What if everything bears the image of God? What if every living thing in its own language spoken it speaks of God's goodness? What if humans aren't the only things that bear the divine stamp that says made in the heart of God? What if we just have not learned to see it? How would we live if we could? How then could we ever go about plundering and pillaging the earth of her resources, of her beauty, of her divine nature, only to further enrich our already obscenely prosperous lives? Let's be honest, guys. Our decisions are between 2015 and 2016 forerunners at this point. What if we honestly understood this? Would we still strip mine the earth changing the landscapes forever? Would we willingly eat animals raised in battery cages, de-beaked and jacked up on tetracycline so that they develop quicker and they don't get diseases thereby, meaning lost to our pocketbooks? Would we do those things if we believed this? Would we still support companies who did this? Are you so sure animals don't feel pain? Do they, have not, do they not have central nervous systems like ours? How old is the science that tells you they don't feel anything, don't worry about it? How old is that science? Have you asked that question? Oh, I know. That's a delicate one. I'm not minimizing the image of God that we bear as humans. What I'm suggesting is that we might not be the only ones in that category. I guess I'm saying that the image we bear in our minds and in our bodies is not the only thing that God ever said in the material world. Stretch your thinking. If we could accept this fact, would we be so deaf to the blind reality of the home that we're overheating and we don't even care. It represents inconvenience, the observable truth that we're running out of these things. It's, it's only a problem because it's a limitation on our insatiable desire to have more. Would we live that way? If we properly understood this planet as a gift, maybe not even as a gift, maybe as God speech, would we separate sacred from profane? Would we separate the things that matter from the things that don't? Would we give ourselves to the convenience of single-use objects created for our 99-cent convenience that will remain with us for a 1,000 years? Would we do those things? Now, I'm not suggesting that the only way to be faithful to God is to be a vegan tree, hunger, tree hugger, but I am saying that, is, that that is a very legitimate way to live your faith out in the world. That's what I'm saying. There's one. There's one. 
Don't get me started. Don't push a Methodist on John Wesley. Don't get me started quoting John Wesley. I wonder, are you aware that he was a vegetarian and not only for health reasons? He wrote this, I believe in my heart that faith in Jesus Christ can and will lead us beyond an exclusive concern for the well-being of other human beings to the broader concern for the well-being of the birds in our backyards and the fish in our rivers and every living creature on the face of the earth, wrote John Wesley. I wonder, does your faith take you there? Have you followed it that far? I'm not answering the questions today. I'm just asking them. If we broke out of antiquated thinking that justifies the taking of whatever we want, not dealing with the consequences, I wonder, how then would we live? What would Christian faithfulness look like to us? Here's what I can tell you. It would be on the move, and it would be under construction, would it not? I think these questions matter. Once we get honest about the world in which we live and breathe, we can't act like we are the only thing that matters, that our comfort, our prosperity, our happiness is all that is. It's time to wake up. No matter where you stumble upon it, here's my suggestion. The image of God is a valid way home. Follow it, no matter where you stumble upon it. It's truth. It reveals God to us. It follows. It self-reveals people who seek with an open heart? What if every living thing was a divine map that could reveal truth about God? What if God is actually hiding in the depths of everything, in all that is, in all that draws us and compels us, in all that breaks and wounds us, in all that conceals us and shatters us and shelters us, in all that holds us and nurtures us, in all that eats our shoes while we're at H-E-B and licks our face when we come home? What if God, we have puppies, what if God was in all those things? What if God is hiding in everything in such a way that all of it can lead us home if we let it? Oh, I think you know the, suggest, the answer that I'm suggesting here. Here's the challenge. We won't see God on the surface of anything. We're going to have to dive in. We're going to have to find the depths. We're going to have to dig deep and stay present. It won't be on the surface. We can't be pro-faith and anti-environment, y'all. It's time to wake up. Any more than we can be open to God but closed to people, living as if life is divided between sacred and secular and these things matter and these things don't. Oh, church, we ought to know by now through the incarnation of Christ that that's been blurred. He brought the world back together into one whole thing. What if the idea that heaven is our home and earth should just burn all away? What if it's time to outgrow that? You say, preacher, now you've lost your mind. Hear me now. What if we were never meant to skip over or jump past the world to get to God? What if the way has always been through, like the way of Jesus Christ? What if God was in the things that we were taught to overlook? We'd have some rebuilding to do, would we not? We haven't been taught how trustworthy the earth is. We don't know how divine our bodies are. We don't actually know how impregnated the material world is with the revelation of God. And it's not that we're dumb, we're young, or we're just waking up, which means it's time to outgrow some bad, bad theology. Come on, preacher. Creation is here for us to use and disregard. God is about saving human beings and taking them to another world. I wonder, are you sure about that? Have you really looked at that in Scripture? Do you know that that theology does not come from the teachings of Christ? It comes from a bad read of Genesis 1. Let's look at it together. Genesis 1 verse 26 reads this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The question is, what does it mean to rule over? You see, this is the rationale that authorizes the taking. What does it mean to rule over? 
It means to steward, to tend, to cultivate, to care for, to pay attention to, not to consume, to misuse, to abuse, or exploit. None of these are valid interpretations of this text is what I'm suggesting, and yet they've authorized the world as we know it. There is no heaven and earth division anymore. There is no division of spirit and flesh. The fact that Jesus stood squarely in both simultaneously ought to show us the future of all that is. It's all good. It's all being redeemed. Could it be that tending the earth is a form of divine work? Could it be that farming and running cattle and making pottery, could it be that these things are actually a form of divine work too? I can tell you my friend Matt, who's pulling in as we speak, his share of Michigan's onion harvest certainly believes that to be the case. Could it be that all of this is our home because all of this is in God? Oh, church, I'm asking a hard question today. Could it be that all of this is part of God's unfolding? If heaven can be here and now as Jesus taught, and if ours is a hope of a new creation with vineyards and streets and rivers and mountains, which we know to be true from the Old Testament, then a greater awareness to how God infuses this place is what's called for. Mark wrote this little piece based on what I sent him the other night. He says, take your blue-eyed heaven with its clean streets and practiced answers and give it back to someone who still prefers that to this. I wonder, do you see order and intention in the regularity of the ocean tides? Do you receive the gift of spring rain as a sign of God's goodness? Oh, you should. Do you feel God's gift to your beautiful body in the smell of freshly baked bread? I hope you do. Do you embrace the sound of a baby's cry as a reminder to truly live, to truly contend for love? Do you see what's hidden beyond our mind's ability to think and perceive? Do you know, can you feel the presence of a lover that pursues, of a God who beckons you to engage, to discover, to pursue, to be present to the almost unbearable wholeness of being alive? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Close your eyes. I was working with Mallory on this sermon this week, and she said, have them close their eyes. I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust you. Close your eyes. It's not going to get creepy. What is it like to know God? to sense his nearness? What is it like to feel God? Drift back in your mind to the last time your breath was literally taken away by the forest or by the sea. Drift back to the last time that love pulled tears from somewhere so deep within your body that you could neither predict nor control them. Drift back to a time when you felt fully at home, fully alive, fully accepted in a place that you could drop your bags at any time of day or night because you know you were loved. I wonder, is that God's speech to you? Because it could be, it should be, it can be, it must be. You can open your eyes. By now, I'm guessing you're on to me. I asked exactly 64 questions this morning. I counted them this morning. And I did that for a reason. Here's what I'm suggesting. God is in the answers. God is in the questions, not in the answers, I should say. Curiosity is a much better guide than certainty. I want you to feel the full permission to lean into these questions. God is there to be known in those places you were taught to distrust. You are surrounded by a material world that wants to lead you home to deeper consciousness, to greater faith, and to more transformative community. Oh, it's a long road but you're built, you're designed to perceive it and to follow it and to know it. It's just a more broad kind of knowing, church. It's a different kind of presence. It's a different kind of awareness. What do I mean? Here's what I'm saying. Trust what your body has always known. God is here. 
to be pursued, to be found in the forest, in the stream, in the puppy's kiss, in the kindness of a stranger, in the tilling of the land, in the changing of the seasons, in every moment we can manage to be fully present. God is here. So church, may we be the kind of community that gives herself completely to this pursuit, to this knowing. May curiosity be our banner. May we embrace all that we can find that harmonizes, that resonates and enhances our understanding of God's love in a good and sacred world. Let's pray.